Hello and welcome to the Good Fundraising Podcast, where we talk with nonprofit thought leaders and changemakers about what's good in the world of fundraising and what could be better. I'm your host, Alicia Mullenstein. Thank you for joining us for Season 2. To kick off Season 2 today, I am delighted to speak to Doreen O'Ham, Chief Development Officer of the Armed Services YMCA National Headquarters. Doreen's had a long career in fundraising and has been an advocate for neurodiversity within our organizations. This conversation, we talk about neurodiversity considerations for hiring and managing, what diversity brings to our teams, and some practical ways of making sure that we are checking ourselves when we're talking about our cultures. We have some great episodes lined up for season two. And as always, I would love to hear from you about what you're interested in learning more about and who you'd be interested in hearing it from. Drop me a note at hello at goodfundraising.net to submit your ideas. Now on to our conversation with Doreen. Doreen, thank you for uh, joining me for season two of the Good Fundraising Podcast. I'm so excited we were able to bring you on to talk about neurodiversity and diversity in our workforce. And I'm really looking forward to sharing your expertise with everyone. Um, can you give us a brief overview of where are you now? What nonprofit are you working for? And what's your role there? Yes, Alicia, thank you so much for having me. I love, as you know, I love talking about this topic. I don't know if I'm an expert, but certainly a, a topic that I have personally poured some time in, into it as a manager, just out of a desire to be a good manager. Um, so thank you again. I'm currently at the Armed Services YMCA, which is a branch of the larger YMCA, but it's focused on military families. And I'm serving as the, the chief development officer there. It's so exciting. I, I mean, YMCA childcare working with families right now, I think is even more on people's minds than it was before. So Absolutely. it seems like a, a very relevant cause at the moment. So Doreen, I really wanted to, to bring you on to talk about hiring and managing. It's certainly something that's been on my mind as a manager, as I've been working with a new team the past six months. And you had shared some really interesting work that you did when you were with MAD, Mothers mm -hmm. Against Drunk Driving, on increasing neurodiversity and um, working with a neurodiverse team at MAD. So I was hoping we could you know, talk a little bit about that experience for you and, and how that's evolved over time as well and you know, some of the things you've learned along the way, um, especially now that we're in this you know, extra challenging moment, I think for all of us as managers and employees. Um, so diversity is obviously a huge topic and we're not gonna get through all of it. So I want to make sure that we touched on the type of diversity, the facet of diversity that we're going to be talking about today. So that is, you know, age and primarily neurodiversity. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, generational or age diversity, you know, I think we all have been in, in uh, meetings or in situations where we've heard folks talk about how old somebody is and how that might correlate to their knowledge, skills, and work ethic. And sometimes, you know, in, in not positive ways. And so I think, you know, generational diversity is sort of recognizing that people are more than their age. Um, neurodiversity relates to the idea that there are neurological differences. We are all built and hardwired differently that are results of sort of normal natural variations in our genome. But these are things that, that don't need to be cured. That, that instead they just need help and accommodation. I know increasing diversity on our teams I mean, really starts right from the hiring process. And so I was hoping you could share a little bit about 
how some of our beliefs in our approach to interviewing could actually be impeding our work, bringing a diverse workforce together. Absolutely. You know, I'll start by saying first, I'm always hesitant to say that that diversity should be an initiative. You hear a lot that we've hired somebody to lead our diversity initiative. And I always say that I, I think the first approach has to be that the leadership specifically has to value diversity as an asset, meaning that having people who don't fit into a specific organizational mold can enhance performance because they challenge the norms that might be holding an organization back. So from the onset, I think we have to make sure that how we talk about diversity matters and who's talking about diversity matters. I don't think this is something that sits only in HR. It has to be integrated into the fabric of every piece and part of an organization because those folks are not the only ones who are responsible for hiring. You and I have hired and managed teams. So when it only sits in HR, you are only touching a piece of the issue. There are some things, though, when it comes to hiring that I think HR departments can do help or harm to the process of hiring and onboarding. You know, when I was at MAD, we had a behavioral assessment tool that we used during the hiring process. So every person who came to do an in-person interview had to fill out this behavioral assessment tool. And at the time when we onboarded it, there was a lot of questions about, you know, does the tool value neurodiversity? And the HR person at the time, this is many years back, um, had said, well, I don't know, do we really want to hire those types of people? And it was sort of a stunning statement to have somebody from HR say. But what I have seen myself going through the, the hiring process a year ago was that more and more organizations are using these types of tools where they're using essentially technology to value an employee based on their behavior. And I think those are dangerous. And we have to, as an organization and as hiring managers, really think about what that means. Um, is there just one correct type of behavior? Um, or is it that we're trying to build a diverse team because we value diversity as an asset? Yeah. It, outside of the tools, it even just makes me think about that classic interview debrief question of, do you think they fit with our culture? Uh-huh. And that in itself can be a bit of a trap because you're just reinforcing what might be some less desirable things about your culture by finding people who can currently fit into it, yep. as opposed to thinking about how, to your point, I think people bring different skills and perspectives to change a culture and contribute to it in a, in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's really a whole mindset shift on what a good employee looks like, you know, on paper and through the beginnings of that interview process. It is. You know, I was always trained that the first question you ask is, can the person do the job? And the second question, which is more important, is can they do the job here? Um, and the question, to your point, is it becomes a, well, there's only one type of person who can do the job here. And instead of the culture changing, the employee will either need to adapt or they won't fit. And that really provides a very narrow view, and it does not allow your organization to thrive or to grow. Yeah, it's limiting for all the parties involved. Absolutely. I mean, do you feel that the nonprofit sector is behind on this, where we're right in the middle of it? Are we ahead in any regards for how we've been approaching neurodiversity compared to, you know, our for-profit peers? 
in all areas of diversity, I think, sadly, I would say the nonprofit world is behind. I would say some of that is a resource issue. You know, we're usually so understaffed as organizations that it's hard for leaders and leadership to make this a priority. You know, that is, as with anything, is the key. If leaders and leadership does not make something a priority, it doesn't happen. So I would say we're largely behind. I would say much to our detriment. Certainly, um, when you look at the tech industry, especially as it relates to neurodiversity, um, they have made it a huge priority because they need neurodiverse individuals for their workforce. And so they've had to figure it out pretty early on. And so where I think nonprofits are behind, and this is something I talked about when I first approached this topic, is I think fundraising has fundamentally changed. It used to be fundraisers were sort of this one one size fits all for somebody who was good at glad handing, somebody who was good at the in-person ask. Now it's so we're so data driven, as you well know, that we need those neurodiverse individuals on our team. And yes, we need the other folks too, but um, we no longer live in a world where everybody's a major gift officer in a development team. Uh, unfortunately, I don't feel like nonprofits have made this shift in terms of hiring. I think you're right. And to your point of leadership, that may have a lot to do just with the fact that you, know, you still see a lot of people in, in your position as chief development officers who don't come up through anything other than major gifts. Yep. And so that skill set is probably more prioritized than others and completely hear you on the resource um, constraints of that as well. Of How do you get that buy-in when there's still perhaps more value assigned to those more traditional fundraising skill sets? Well, that's why I think these types of conversations are so important. And I think it's so great that you're, you're highlighting this issue is because ultimately what I came to the conclusion when I first started looking at this was I can't control leadership and I can't control the HR department, but I can control me. And I can control who I choose to hire and how I choose to treat my employees. And so to your point, we all have a tendency and gravitate towards people who are like us because that's comfortable. But how do we challenge ourselves as individual managers to look for people who are different and see that as an asset? I love that point that there's growth for our teams and the people we manage, but there's also huge growth opportunity for ourselves as managers um, and frankly, as people with this work. You know, since we're sort of talking about that initial onboarding interviewing piece, let's focus on that for a second. So what are some of the considerations you would take in when you're considering how to have a more neurodiverse, inclusive hiring process? For me, one of the revelations I've had recently, especially with COVID, is that you really need to have conversations at the beginning about what your employees need to be successful. It seems obvious, but this whole concept of workplace accommodations is so tied up in legal jargon and HR policy and procedure that sometimes we forget that fundamentally that's what it comes down to. When you're talking to an employee and saying, what's a workplace accommodation, a reasonable accommodation that I could make for you that would help you be more productive? When you frame it that way, it's so much easier. Instead, unfortunately, so many companies frame it as an HR discussion. And so it becomes about, well, we're only going to do it if the employee proactively comes to us and tells us about it. Unfortunately, that makes it something that many employees just feel like they're going to be judged for, that they're going to be raising red flags that they don't want to do. So instead of putting it on the employee, I really have 
as I onboard new employees, have really proactively came to them and said, what is it that you need to be successful? And that's what we should always be doing. That's probably a great thread to continue you know, throughout the process, there's the importance of bringing it up and interviewing. So you've already set the table that that's an option. You know, it's not something that the employee has to get over any barriers that they're facing to go and ask. But I'm just thinking about the importance of bringing that up in ongoing conversations when, you know, you have an annual review or a regular check-in just as another question on there of, are there any accommodations that would help you be more successful? You know, one of the things I remember reading about disability is that it's, it's really one of the only types of categories any, anyone can be in at any point in their life, right? You're, you're yep. not born with it necessarily. Um, any one of us could be a member of the disabled community at some point in our lives. And so keeping that conversation going and open, um, I can absolutely see the importance of beginning with that. So people always know that that's an option for them. Yeah. And it's really, you know, thankfully due to the situations that occurred last summer, I think there's been a much stronger focus on equity versus equality, but that's something that not everybody understood or understands. So I always think it's important to note that, you know, equity is giving someone what they need to be successful. Equality is treating everyone the same and equality isn't always what the employee needs. If I treated every employee the same, that is glossing over the fact that one person might need this accommodation that another person doesn't. And so we shouldn't be striving towards equality and treating everyone equal. We should actually be striving towards equity. And I think understanding that nuance is really critical to any diverse work you do. That's a great point. And it definitely makes me think that that view of equality is sort of how we got ourselves into positions of super restrictive, no remote, no remote work for anyone type of policies, Absolutely. or you have to work at the national headquarters. You couldn't possibly work from another city and do your job well. And COVID has blown a lot of that up, but there is always that underlying concern that the second things are quote unquote back to normal, we will revert back to those old behaviors. So I think that's, that's a really important distinction. Are there any other aspects of that hiring process or the interview process that you've seen work best for neurodiverse prospects? You know, it's traditionally, especially as it relates to folks who may be on the autism spectrum, traditionally they've done poorly in in in-person interviews. And so you mentioned COVID. It has been this sort of transformational uh, moment for hiring that we now were sort of forced to do not in-person interviews, which has been great for those folks on the neurodiverse scale who don't thrive in in in-person interviews. Even just the way we've interviewed people and hired people has transformed so much over the last year that I hope that it's an awakening that we can do things differently and still bring on quality talent. Yeah, absolutely. I was in my new role, completely onboarded remote uh, early on to, to all of this. And I think for me, it was great if only because I can keep seeing the names of everyone on the Zoom screens and I don't have to worry about continually forgetting people's names after I meet them for 30 seconds in the hallway. But I can also see that it comes with its own unique set of challenges to do it well. Before we get into ongoing management, we have that period of onboarding. So you've hired someone, they've gone through the interview process. Now you're bringing them on board. What are some ways that we can successfully make onboarding, uh, make the best possible experience for new hires? I think, first of all, we have to identify up front what it is that that employee needs to be successful, right? It's about integrating those accommodations in a conversation up front 
you know, we've not talked a lot about it, but when it relates to generational diversity, there's also some things that need to be taken into consideration as it relates to generational diversity. You know, I've heard a lot of people say someone is too old to do something like lead marketing or this concept that they have to be young in order to be hip to industry trends or to manage social media. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it, it's been that millennials are painted as job hoppers and that they're just not invested or they don't have a good work ethic. Really, especially as it relates to millennials, onboarding is everything. I mean, I've left jobs because I had a bad onboarding experience. So setting someone up from the beginning with the tools that they need to be successful is going to decrease the likelihood that they're going to be a job hopper. And I think as it relates to older individuals, understanding that there may be individuals who are not comfortable with a specific technology because of their past experience and providing the training and tools versus expecting them to have that coming in. And it doesn't mean that they're not a valuable asset, but you and I both know there's 8 million types of CRMs. So, you know, just because you know Salesforce doesn't mean that you're going to jump in and immediately know BlackBot or whatever CRM that organization is using. So providing them with the training instead of expecting them to figure it out goes a long way as it relates to the generational diversity and not making that a negative that so many people say, well, I want to hire someone young because we all know that younger people are better at technology. Well, that's not always true. And instead of expecting them to be able to go in and figure it out on their own, how about we provide training so they know how to do it? Yeah, training, absolutely key for any of it, because even if you use the technology before that, your new place of business is going to use it a slightly different way or have their own ways of using it that are their norms. Yeah. You know, I'm curious as our teams in a lot of organizations are probably thinking, gosh, my team is so conventional. This feels like a huge hurdle, but it's our role as managers of those teams to make sure that, what's your point with equity that we're giving everyone on the team, what they need to succeed. And part of that is also the dynamic of the people um, on the existing team. So how do you model the importance of making those accommodations accessible, making them more the norm than the exception? Just recently, I did this exercise. I hired two new staff members who were actually internal promotions from two field offices that I moved up to HQ. Uh, So I had quite a few, I had two new team members, I had another relatively newer one, and then someone who'd been in the organization for like eight years. I bought everybody a copy of the book Strength Finders and had everybody take the assessment and share it if they were willing, which everybody was, thankfully. And then we had a meeting where we went through and we talked about our strengths, how we see our strengths, what the assessment tool said our strengths were. The whole goal of it and what really came out of it was this understanding that we are all different and that we all fit into a larger puzzle piece. What I liked about Strength Finders is one, it's focused on strengths instead of weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So it's very positive in and itself. It also has a framework for taking those strengths and putting them into buckets four buckets um, that you need. And what we found was that we were really strong in one bucket and we had one bucket where we were weak. And the team came to the conclusion that at our next hire, we needed to find somebody who filled more of that side of the matrix, which was interesting. So one, it had made 
a situation where everybody had buy-in in diversity because we recognized, hey, we don't want to continue hiring people who look like us. We've got enough of this bucket, which was the strategy bucket, but we didn't have enough of people in the executing function. You know, instead of actually creating a situation where people just want to hire people who look and think like us, we actually proactively came to the conclusion as a team that we needed to hire someone who was completely different than us as it relates to strength. And I think that is so critical to engage your staff in a conversation about how you're going to hire that next person or what building a team really looks like as it relates to plotting out how all of our strengths work in harmony. I love that idea. And I just want you to know right now that I'm stealing it and I'm going to use it (laughs) because I have some hiring to do soon. And I think that's just a great way of getting the team engaged in that process from the beginning. And there's a huge transparency component to that. Why are you looking for candidates or bringing these candidates in? This is the skill set that you've all identified that they need. I think that's really great. And everyone already has that in their mind for when they're interviewing. That's fantastic. So Strength Finders, it's a book. And then there's also an assessment as part of that book. That's right. That's great. I will will add a link to that in the show notes for anyone else who's interested in taking a look about that. So we've talked a little bit about the hiring. We've talked about onboarding. What about once someone's on the team for their career development? There's a lot of considerations, and it sounds like that strength finder assessment might actually be a really helpful tool in thinking about how people progress in their career, that it's not necessarily a linear path for everyone, or those paths can look very different depending on people's interests. How does that sort of view of having diverse teams, taking neurodiversity and age into account, how does that shape how you mentor your teams and, and look out for their professional development? Well, I think having constant check-ins with folks and finding out the role that they're filling, meeting their expectations, and helping them with whatever their professional development goals or career development goals are, especially at the beginning of a new hire. You know, we all, we have job descriptions and we go through a process and we hire, but fundamentally we've all started jobs that were different than what we thought they were going to be. So we have a duty as a hiring manager to check in and make sure that they feel like they didn't get sold a bill of goods, that the job that they thought they were going to do is the job that is making them feel fulfilled and reaching their career goals. In general, I would say I have an unconventional approach. I actually want my employees to leave. That sounds strange, but fundamentally, if I'm doing my job, I'm sort of promoting them to move on to eventually take over a role like what I have. And so I invest a lot of time in making sure that they can go to trainings and I proactively encourage them to attend the ANA conference, which our organization has never done before. Good thing about COVID, right? Is I can buy one pass and everybody in the organization can attend. I bought the organization pass and I actually distributed the link to every single employee in the organization. And it was amazing the response I got. I had EDs in our branches who said, oh my gosh, I've never had an opportunity to do this type of training. Thank you so much. I've shared it with my fundraising person. I think that's one of the amazing things about COVID, although I'm exhausted with virtual conferences, I think it has opened the door for professional development and made it so much more accessible for organizations that maybe don't have funding to actually send people to conferences. Uh, I think the other piece to that and this especially relates to age diversity is 
making sure you're giving people opportunities for growth that doesn't necessarily mean promotion and doesn't necessarily mean um, money. So when I say that, I mean professional development like I just talked about, but I also mean just giving them access to tools and interesting articles to read. And in my prior role at MAD, every staff meeting, somebody was on tap to bring an interesting article about something related to fundraising or marketing. And I didn't put any restrictions on it other than that. We rotated every meeting. So every single person had a responsibility to bring to the table an article, distribute it before the meeting, and we would reserve the last 20 minutes of our staff meeting to talk about the article. It was a really great opportunity to let staff members highlight and showcase their own public speaking skills, their own leadership skills, but it also made us all smarter. I think that's just an easy way that you can promote. It doesn't cost you any money. You don't have to figure out a new position or a promotion, but you're investing in the development of that person. And ultimately, that sometimes fills the bucket enough for people that you don't have people anxious to always be coming to you asking for a raise, which in the nonprofit world is always problematic. Yes, it is problematic. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing something similar with um, EDIB readings. We have like every other week, a different person at the team brings something on a different facet of EDIB that we all read together. And sometimes it's through a racial lens, sometimes it's gender. Um, I think the one on deck coming up is actually focused on invisible disabilities, but it, to your point, it's letting people kind of share yeah. that part of the work that's interesting for them, and it's continuing that ongoing education. I like the idea of having a very broad opportunity to bring in not just, hey, what was a creative campaign that you liked, but mm-hmm. that you're reading in the sector, because it, it also encourages people to be engaged in the sector beyond their organization. That can be challenging when it often feels like the only opportunity is with conferences or networking and And those feel constrained in a lot of ways right now. And I think also you and I are probably fall into this bucket. I've always been a person who likes to try things that they haven't tried before in their workplace. When I started at MAD, I was a speechwriter. You know, I simply asked the question, hey, would you mind if I sit in on some of these direct mail meetings? Because I'm kind of interested in it. And luckily at the time, right, I was working with Nick Ellinger, who's a great mentor in the industry. He said, sure. As time passed, I learned more and more. And when Nick decided to move on, he said, I think Doreen is the right person to take over direct marketing. That's another example of I didn't get any money. I didn't get a title or a promotion at the onset, but allowing people to learn other skills within the confines of an organization. It only makes you more well-rounded from a staffing perspective, but it actually can keep that person engaged and keep them in a organization longer. That's great. I mean, it's a stretch opportunity. It combines personal interest. There's growth in there. It's a great personal perspective on it. Doreen, what else have we not covered that you think would be really important to call out about what you've seen be successful in working to better create diverse teams and support those diverse teams? I think we've touched on, but we haven't gone into, we could probably do an entire episode on, you know, (laughs) what COVID's impact is going to be on all this. Some of it is where we are today and the million dollar question, where do we go from here? Um, You and I've chatted about 
you know, will we just go back to status quo? We've had some sort of leaps and bounds in terms of remote working and openness to geographical diversity as it relates to a workforce. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, where will we be when we don't have to work from home anymore, right? Right. It's interesting because when I took the chief development officer role at Armed Services YMCA, it was premised upon me relocating to DC. And as you know, we've known each other a long time. I've most, I've remote worked for the last 12 years. It's not something I ever wanted to get rid of, (laughs) but here I had this amazing opportunity and we made the decision to do it. And the joke was I literally arrived, closed on a house and arrived in DC on March 23rd. So we all know that that was when the work ended. So the joke in the office is that I relocated and yet to go into the office because I've been working from home since March of last year. What's fascinating about that is for the three months prior to me moving, I was remote working from Austin and it was painful, Alicia. We just, a culture was not built for it. Uh, They would forget to invite me to meetings, not intentionally. It's just, they were built on being in person. They did not know how to function with a remote employee. The amazing part now is I think we will forever be partially remote and they have allowed me to make every single hire I have made up to this point remote. I have an employee in North Carolina. I have an employee in Alaska. Mm -hmm. I have an employee in Dallas. So COVID has really transformed our organization and I don't think we'll ever go completely back to only being in the office because I've built a team that's not built around that. And they really see the value in it. And that sort of was a forced experiment and it's been a successful one. So I'm very hopeful, at least as it relates to my own organization, that there will be many that follow suit that will say, wow, we would have never believed it. We were sort of forced to and it turns out it, it's actually quite nice and we see the benefits of it. And so we see this as being a, an option on an ongoing basis. I hope that that is, in fact, the case. I, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think we're going to have another inflection point and there's going to be a you know, remote work 3.0 <laughs> out of all of this where you, know, you will have some people, which you were saying, that actually benefit and thrive <clears throat> Excuse me, from working in an office yes. and others who don't. It will be very much a hybrid, and hopefully that can be done in a way that supports people's needs, Um, because even though it feels like we've made the remote workspace far more equitable and we've really leveled the playing field, so it's so much harder to forget to invite someone when everyone is, is showing up on Zoom, but there are certainly inequities with the way people are working, if they have roommates or not, if they're, you know, working on their bed versus they have an office, so figuring out how we make it an equitable work experience in a hybrid environment is, is going to be the next challenge that we all face. Yeah. And, and if the flip side of that, I guess my concern is remote is not the panacea, right? It's not the solution to creating neurodiversity. Zoom meetings that have 50 people on them where everybody's talking over each other, they're personally painful for me. They're like crushing to a neurodiverse individual creating upfront parameters around what you will do and won't do in remote meetings is critical to having success with neurodiverse individuals. 
are we going to go video or are we only audio, right? How many meetings have you been on where half the people are like, oh, we're doing video? Uh, and it creates discomfort. Neurodiverse individuals deal better with direct communication and expectation setting. So keep in mind that even in a remote setting, there's still accommodations that have to be made to make sure that they're successful. You know, for people who have diverse learning styles, not everybody deals well with receiving information in an audio format. So how do you make sure that you have read-aheads that have visual information for people who are more visual learners? We can't let remote working and say, oh, check the box. You know, we've, we've covered and made accommodations for neurodiverse individuals. Really, it, again, it's checking in with that individual, making sure that the systems you've set up are working for them, and if there's any accommodations that need to be made, even within the confines of remote working, I think is still critical. You know, it's interesting, even within neurodiverse populations, I think there's an assumption that remote is better because people see, think neurodiverse, they think um, mostly autistic. But actually, when you look at folks who have ADHD, working from home is actually harder for them, especially if they have kids at home. <laughs> Um, and other distractions like, oh, I, should, I can just do my laundry and I can just do this. They get very overwhelmed with the distractions. And actually, there's a lot of folks with ADHD who've said, hey, is there a possibility that an accommodation could be that I go into an office? You know, I think the focus on neurodiversity certainly is that you, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, the people are experts in their own experience. And so if we really integrate the, the, the accommodation piece into the onboarding, then we can create a custom accommodation per employee versus saying everybody's going to work remote or nobody's going to work remote. There's probably a healthy in-between. So interesting, the, the sort of Venn diagram of these issues where not everyone learns their best by listening. Some people need a visual, some people need it written down. Some people need a one-on-one versus a group. And yep. how do you find a way to integrate all of those different touch points that this has come up in a lot of EDIB conversations as well with the way white managers tend to behave yep. versus a more diverse workforce and how they receive and, and process information and how they contribute that information back. There's quite an intersection of all these issues when you start to get into the, the practicalities of it. I also think that, especially for young employees, the word of the year has been flexibility. COVID sort of forced flexibility on a number of companies and organizations. But I will say I have significant concerns about the long-term impacts of the pandemic on women. So many have had to pull out of the workforce or pull back from their jobs to accommodate. And those who haven't have been chastised. I can tell you personally, I have a 20-month-old. We made a decision last March. We had to put him in daycare because I literally couldn't do my job as a, you know, three-month into a chief development officer role and do what I need to do for my career and be a good mom to him while keeping him at home. And you would not believe the amount of mom guilt that I got from people Um, it was either be a mom or be a chief development officer. And that's not fair to me. No one asked my husband what he was doing. (laughs) Of course not. Yeah. Such a complicated web. (laughs) So as with these issues, I'm always amazed at what a little compassion will do. 
you know, I think there has been a lot of flexibility this year, but I don't, I don't see that sticking around. And unfortunately, I think that women are the ones who bear the brunt of that. Well, I, I am sure. And just from your commitment to these issues and how long you've been working on them, that you will continue in your leadership capacity to model that flexibility and offer that flexibility to your teams. That's one of the biggest things we can do as managers is making sure that we're supporting and advocating for our teams. I'm wondering though, you know, we, we talked at the top about how these efforts really shouldn't be just left with HR, that they really need to be integrated throughout the organization. Um, have you run into, or what would you recommend if someone is running into hurdles with HR trying to get the support they need? Because, you know, I know one thing that comes up in large organizations, like the kind that we've both worked for, is that different departments really operate as their own ecosystems, that there's uneven norms and expectations and ways of working. And HR can really be a, like a leveling force on that. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what to do if HR isn't quite keeping up with the type of culture you're trying to create within your own organization and team? The benefit of the role that I'm in now is that I'm at the table with the senior leaders and have interface daily with the CEO. And so I can have those conversations at that level. And and that's frankly where the conversations should begin uh, is at that level about, hey, we need to make this a priority. That being said, um, you know, the the one benefit that I have Uh, in these scenarios is that I'm also a lawyer. And so sometimes, right, HR tries to come down from the legality standpoint and the risk management standpoint, and that's the matrix for which they start and end these conversations, which can sort of impact CEOs and how they frame out. The benefit I've had in these conversations is that as a lawyer, I have a different lens and I have some credibility to be able to provide the proper perspective on what the risk actually is. Obviously not everybody has that. So it's not, you know, that's not a great piece of advice, but I would say most HR folks take their direction from the CEO. So if you are using your platform to have these conversations with the CEO, getting them on board with what you're trying to do, a lot of times that forces HR to get involved and get on board. I'm just thinking I have a whole organization full of lawyers. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that explains a lot. Uh, so we'll definitely put in the show notes the Strength Finders book and assessment. Are there any other resources? And if you don't think of them now, completely fine. We can add them in after the fact. But are there other resources that people can go to to educate themselves on these issues and think about how they want to manage their teams, being more conscious of? all the diversity within our teams, including generational and neurodiversity? Yeah, you know, how I first got interested in this topic was there was a very interesting article that was written in the Harvard Business Review probably four years ago um, on this topic and specifically about what the tech industry was doing as it relates to this. So it's a great read to tell you what the for-profit industry is doing and why it's so important to what they're doing. But I would just encourage people then to think about it in terms of how we at nonprofits have had to operate. And certainly COVID has forced many nonprofits who were maybe not um, looking at the technology side or the importance of, of IT and data infrastructure and all of that stuff. It became really important when we all went remote and we all had to figure out how to have major impactful events in a remote setting. 
Um, that's what really led me down this path of curiosity and is figuring out how I could build a team that would enable me to do what the HPs of the world were doing with a scintilla of the budget. <laughs> but um, with any diversity initiative, and certainly, Alicia, I think you're modeling with your own work on your own team, this is having conversations with people who think differently than you and learning why. It's not a book. It's not an easy read article. It's uncomfortable. Putting on your sort of listening ears, as I tell my son, instead of um, coming to the table with preconceived notions and thoughts has done so much for me as it relates to all areas of diversity that really asking friends who are you know, African-American, help me understand white privilege. I mean, I really, I'm a person who really did not like that term and was really offended by that term for many, many years until I just sat down with someone who I valued and really respected and say, help me understand this. And they really, we had a frank conversation. She was an employee um, and we had a frank conversation about it. it, really opened my eyes to it. And I see the world in such a different way now. We don't all have to, to get PhDs in diversity work to make an impact. If you employ intentionality and you listen more than you talk, eventually you will come to a place where you will understand these issues in so much greater detail and so much broader perspective. That's my last bit of advice. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing your own journey with some of this, the efforts you've put into your team. And I think these are some great resources to get it started. It's really a lifelong conversation Absolutely. for all of us and for our organizations, but it's a great starting point. So thank you. Absolutely. Many thanks to Doreen for joining me today to talk about neurodiversity and diversity within our teams. If you enjoyed this conversation, be on the lookout for an article that Doreen has coming up in the Nonprofit Times on how COVID is impacting neurodiversity. That article is coming out soon, and we'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, please tell a colleague, and consider subscribing. As always, if you have an idea for a topic, please drop me a line at hello goodfundraising.net. Thanks again for joining as we start season two. And until next time, remember to be nice and do good.